Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I'm not wrong. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one look. Talk to the road. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming tail with this. He's pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub, cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who, whose whose life would be. I harm someone each time. Kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, especially for uh, enormous amount of, of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Stan the Man Smith was one of the most legendary criminal enforcers in the Sydney underworld from the late 1950s through to the 1980s. He was closely associated with big crime kingpins like Lenny McPherson and George Freeman. Although he was one of the most prolific hitmen in Australian history, being responsible for at least 25 shootings and 15 murders, he only spent three months in prison. When 42-year-old Cairns resident Li Ping Chow disappeared on November 30th, 2011, her 70-year-old husband Klaus Andreas did an appalling job of feigning concern about her whereabouts. He didn't report her missing and used a press conference to try to convince the public she was a terrible, rebellious woman who had mistreated her poor, long-suffering husband. While he was out there spreading lies about her, Li Ping's dead body was dissolving in a bin full of acid. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, you can go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our divisive early uh, stuff. I, I think you mean our um, awesome beyond belief early stuff. Yeah, kind of shite early <laughs> stuff. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, I think it's time to get cracking. Let's do it. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. German citizens Klaus and Monica Andreas and their son Ralph immigrated to Australia in 1982. The family moved around a fair bit while Klaus pursued employment in warehousing and logistics. They eventually settled down in Cairns, northern Queensland, but soon afterwards Monica became ill and later died. 
After the untimely death of his wife, Klaus was free to indulge in his fetish for Asian women half his age. In 2005, Klaus met Li Ping Chow when he went on a trip to China. Unable to find pants strong enough to cage his irrepressible manhood, Klaus had originally gone to hook up with another woman that he'd met online. He needs to wear jorts. Yeah. That works that, for me. Is, is that why you wear jorts, to cage your irrepressible manhood? Works for me. Well, I'm hoping you're a never-nude so that that stays caged. We don't need that let loose on the world. Oh, no, no. Get back in there, you big bastard. <laughs> Do you have, like, some kind of stick that you push it down oh, with as well? absolutely. It's oh. like wrangling a crocodile, isn't it? Oh, my dick stick. Yeah, you Dick's tick. <laughs> Klaus and Li Ping ended up spending four blissful days together in her home city of Dalian, west of Beijing. Klaus returned to Australia enamoured with Li Ping and went back to China to visit her five times within the next nine months. Using his charm arsenal of empty promises, dyed blonde hair, gold chains and a thick German accent, Klaus eventually convinced Li Ping to come live with him in Cairns. I mean, who could resist? Li Ping was anxious when she arrived in Australia in October 2006. She hardly spoke any English, and the only person she knew was Klaus, but she was hoping to start a new life in a land of opportunity. Six weeks later, Li Ping and Klaus got married at the court registry after she'd signed a prenuptial agreement, and things just got less romantic from there. Like German romantic poetry. I've heard... According to uh, cannibal Izzy Sagawa, um, the German poetry is very romantic, Barney. Nine. M- music to eat girls by. Oh, nice. Leaping couldn't have known that over the next five years, her selfish, womanising husband would cheat on her multiple times, become involved with another woman, and find a stingy coward's way to eliminate and replace her. With limited English, Leaping naturally formed friendships with several other Chinese women living in Cairns. She got a job at a Chinese restaurant and formed a close group of friends who were there to support her when the red flag started showing in her relationship with Klaus. Their neighbour, Joshua Hobbs, told the court he heard the couple argue three to four times a week, often about money. Joshua said of Klaus, "'Oh, he was just an old person, to tell you the truth. We'd had run-ins with him in the past, just over the fence. He was just a really loose character, I guess. Just a psycho.'" Don't hold back, Joshua. Oh, Joshua was being diplomatic. I'm sure he wanted to say something far more harsh, possibly including bad words. Well, we don't like bad words here, do we? not around here. Fuck that. No no cunting bad words here. (laughs) We particularly think it's fucked when ladies do it. Klaus's friend Paul Mitchell told the media that Klaus complained constantly to him about Li Ping, saying that they never had sex and that she only hung out with Chinese people, ate Chinese food and spoke in Chinese with her teenage son Heng Min when he would come over from China to visit her. Well, you'd think she's Chinese. Oh Yeah, with all of these, uh, these kind of uh, hints, you would imagine that yes. she might be. These Chinese eccentricities that Chinese people have. Like speaking Chinese. Yeah. Klaus claimed that Li Ping spoke in Chinese, not because it was the first language of her and her son, but so he wouldn't know what she was saying, because the world revolves entirely around Klaus. In an effort to assimilate more into Australian life, Li Ping began attending TAFE classes to learn English. It was here that she met Judy Cho, who told reporters, She was a lovely lady. She had some good friends here in Cairns, but I don't think her husband liked her going to TAFE. So Klaus doesn't like Li Ping speaking Chinese and he doesn't like her learning English. 
Trying to please him must have been impossible. So she was going to TAFE to learn English. What's that, um, tertiary and further education? It's, yeah, like yeah. a kind of adult education, really, mm. in a way. Cool. Just thought I'd explain that to our non-Australian listeners. Yeah, you're having a bit of a mansplain, are you? Uh, I was just trying to help. Yeah, well, well, actually is the best answer for that. Well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually. Li Ping's immigration agent, John Young, who represented her when she first moved to Australia, said the couple initially seemed to be madly in love before their relationship went south. He described Klaus as being a clean freak who was always dressed immaculately and seemed driven by acquiring more and more possessions. Young told the police about an incident where Klaus barged into his office demanding all of Li Ping's immigration documents. After checking the consent form and realising Li Ping's signature had been forged, he refused to give Klaus what he wanted. A few days later, Li Ping rushed into his office and looked like she was scared. Young said she seemed very relieved when he assured her that he hadn't given Klaus her documents. Young said, I didn't like him from the start, the way he was talking and demanding things. Being married to Li Ping hadn't made Klaus's moral fibre or the fabric of his pants any stronger, and he continued to chase other women like a geriatric German Pepe Le Pew. That's the worst kind. That's not my favourite kind, although you know what? Uh, teenage Yugoslavian Pepe Le Pews, they're also a little, a little irritating on, t- yeah, yeah, a, on a, toast. A little bit shy. <laughs> they're a little bit irritating on toast. He responded to a sexy time newspaper ad from a woman who called herself Asian Lady, and he also placed his own ad in the Cairns Post in 2010, seeking exotic poontang. Well, I like exotic poontang, and I like very short walks on the beach, and I like romantic German poetry. The issues in their marriage had forced Li Ping to flee her home to stay with friends on more than one occasion. She'd also asked Klaus for a separation, but he wasn't okay with it, as he considered Li Ping to be one of his possessions. In late 2010, Klaus, Li Ping and her 17-year-old son, Heng Min Gong, who'd been staying with them for several months, travelled to China. Li Ping had been having severe dental issues and visited her dentist who fitted her mouth with four porcelain teeth. The couple flew home after a month, leaving her son Heng Min behind with family. In July 2011, Li Ping returned to China alone for a two-month visit. It was during this trip that Klaus went to the Reef Hotel Casino and met a 35-year-old Thai tourist named Surunrat Kongrat. Surunrat, who went by the nickname Da, became Klaus's mistress. Klaus declared his love for Da, and being a true romantic and a stingy bastard, gave her a ring that had belonged to his deceased wife, Monica. Before she flew home to Thailand, Klaus told Da he wanted to marry her. They then continued their love story online. Dear Da, dozens of saucy emails revealing the extent of their relationship were sent between the two for months. In the emails, Klaus told Da he wanted to be with her and referred to his wife, Li Ping, as a problem. Before Li Ping returned home to Cairns after her final trip back to China in 2011, her dentist fitted her with another six porcelain teeth. Weeks later, her ten porcelain teeth would be all that was left of Li Ping Chow. Li Ping last used her mobile phone in Cairns on the night of October 30th, 2011, and she was never heard from again. Nine days later, after many failed attempts to contact her, three of Li Ping's friends went to the Cairns police station and reported her missing. 
So she's been gone nine days, but Klaus hasn't really, like, didn't really care. Didn't bother to report that. Mm, suspicious. Mm, fishy. Very fishy. When detectives interviewed Klaus about Li Ping's disappearance, he told them he hadn't seen her since she walked out of their house nine days earlier, following an argument during which she accurately accused him of cheating on her. Klaus's behaviour from the very beginning was the opposite of what one would expect from the concerned husband of a missing woman. In a strategic move, police organised a press conference with Klaus to appeal for information from the public on Li Ping's disappearance. I got you to watch that, didn't I? It's really quite revolting to watch the footage of smug Klaus basking in the attention, claiming that Li Ping has probably run off with another man without a shred of concern for her whereabouts. He cites the times when things had been so bad for her that she'd had to go stay with friends as an example of her flighty behaviour. He joked around and played up to the reporters, asking them which one was his best side, before discussing the couple's long-running marriage problems, putting the blame firmly on his missing wife. He told the media Li Ping had an eccentric temperament and a rebellious attitude before revealing that he was shitty that she'd left. He said, my marriage was never really a marriage. She never talked to me nicely. After the cameras stopped rolling, Klaus made sexual advances to one of the journalists and asked for her phone number. Did he get it? Uh, no, I believe she was probably standing there going, oh, I don't have a phone. And he's like, but you're a journalist. You but must. And she's like, no, no, I just like go in the office and sometimes and I just, I don't have a phone. Well, what's that in your hand? And she threw it to the ground and stomped on it and then ran in front of traffic. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. So yeah, the press conference was very revealing. I got you to watch that. Yeah, it was. It was quite interesting. And you know, of course, the detectives are immediately going to look at someone's spouse if they go missing, right? Well, particularly if they're gone for nearly two weeks and they don't even report them missing. Well, the thing they're going to look for is their affect, mm-hmm. you know, how they react about it. Yeah. He was not reacting in a way that anyone who was actually legitimately in his situation would be. No, he wasn't upset at all. He was smiling. He was yeah. playing up to the cameras and he was talking about himself. Yeah, constantly. And at one point they had to go. And so, okay, so why is it, what, what is the point of you having the press conference? And he's like, oh, that's right. Yeah. My wife. Um, yeah. She's uh, missing. Yeah, that's right. Like... I'll put this on our Facebook page. It's 16 minutes long and there weren't any real greatest hits to pull out of it. So it's better to just watch it in its, as a whole because it's very revealing. Well, that's right. And it's all reading between the lines. He doesn't come right out and say that I'm happy the bitch is gone, but he pretty much does. Yeah, he's like laughing and smiling and stuff. Yeah. It's just really unbelievable. Normally, um, well, in most cases uh, where the husband is guilty, they, they pretend they're not sort of enjoying themselves, don't they? Mm. Some of them even, like, squeeze out a tear or two. Not Klaus. Yeah, crocodiles. When Li Ping's immigration agent, John Young, watched Klaus's performance at the press conference on TV, he instinctively knew what had gone down. He said, Knowing what I thought of the guy and knowing how nasty and vindictive he was, I thought something sinister might have happened. I remember I turned to my wife and said, I bet you any money he's killed his wife. Young's wife declined to take him up on that bet. Cairns detectives Brad McLeish and Josh Riles had investigated many missing persons cases in their time. When the two detectives interviewed Klaus at his suburban Brinstead house, they both noticed there was just something about him that seemed a bit off. They also noticed a strong chemical smell throughout the house, which was strongest in the garage. 
A lot of Klaus's bizarro antics in the days after Li Ping's disappearance were captured on CCTV around the city of Cairns, which allowed police to trace his movements, including two trips to Bunnings to buy hydrochloric acid. On November 20th, detectives arrested Klaus and brought him into the Cairns Police Station for further interviews. While this was happening, Klaus's property was declared a crime scene and officers and forensic specialists searched it for evidence of foul play. They seized computers, phones, paperwork and other items. They found Li Ping's mobile phone buried in an urn which contained the ashes of Klaus's first wife, Monica. He keeps all his dead wives in that urn. Detective Sergeant McLeish said, We went out and spoke to all these witnesses we'd identified but didn't want to approach until we had Klaus in custody. One of those interviewed was Klaus's mistress, Dar's brother, Yutai Ratsu. He said to police that Klaus had told him that his sister was a much more affectionate lover than his cold wife, which isn't usually something a brother wants to or has to hear about, is it? You see, this thing I have to tell you about your sister <laughs> is she's a, she go off. She's like firecrackers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is quite odd. Yeah. It is very much, um, she boom fucker the shizer out of me. Yeah. I mean, it's different. It's mm, different. But no, brother does not want to hear that about his sister. Oh, my God. I should talk to my boyfriend's uh, brothers. I should go, you know what, guys? Woo! <laughs> he really, whoa, he really knows how to drive oh, yeah. a bed. What about oh, you guys? Man. Does it run the family? Man, I touched the sky last night. I, ride, I, I was riding a rainbow with your brother. <laughs> it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Detective Sergeant McLeish stated, he said, Klaus came up and saw me and he had Li Ping's driver's licence and he said that Dar could come back over from Thailand and take over Li Ping's licence. So hang on, this driver's licence? Yeah, so Klaus had Li Ping's driver's licence and he went to Dar's brother's house, told him that she went off like a rocket in the sack uh, and then said, here's this driver's licence that my missing wife has, used to use, Lee Ping can come over and just use it and she can drive and yeah, she can not, just be my wife. They're not really transferable. I, I, what's he saying? Like all Asian women look the same? I so believe she, you could he's use saying this that, driver's license. I think he's saying they're interchangeable. <laughs> they're just entirely interchangeable. They all have the same parts and you can just whoop, flip them around. Right, right. Awesome. You're Lee Ping now. When you're driving, you're Lee Ping. That's who you are, honey. But, I mean, it does speak volumes, doesn't it? Uh, he's revealing that Lee Ping won't need her license anymore. And also just that horrible attitude of women being interchangeable is also clear. I mean, if we can get past the fact that he banged on about what a great route she was. Oh, a great route. <laughs> oh, your sister. <laughs> Neighbours told the police that they'd seen Klaus pouring a wheelie bin full of a foul-smelling pink sludge down the stormwater drain in front of his house a week after Li Ping disappeared. Strawberry milkshake. Yeah, oh my God, it was a bin full of strawberry milkshake. Ugh. Officers also noticed patches of grass in the front yard, which seemed burnt. They excavated two truckloads of gravel from the stormwater drain. After searching through it, they found 10 porcelain teeth. So he's wheeling the wheelie bin out to the gutter, mm -hmm. and he's, some of it splashed out and burnt his lawn, mm -hmm. and he's emptied it into the stormwater drain. Yep. Okay. And then and probably hosed it out and got on with his life. Well, yeah. Maybe he went to a casino and met a, a lovely Asian lady. Now, at that point, the police didn't know that Li Ping had 10 false teeth fitted and it took a lot of work for them to track down her Chinese-based dentist and confirm it. That's some good police work. It is. 
Police worked with social services to confirm Klaus had forged his wife's signature in a request for her payments to be put into his account after she'd disappeared as well. Mm. Greedy and stingy. Greedy and stingy, my two favourite things. Uh, He also had a couple of goes at trying to take money out of Li Ping's account with her ATM card. Uh, I imagine he probably tried to log into her computer accounts too, but he'd be using passwords like... Klaus is handsome. Klaus is great. Klaus is the best. And he's like, why can't I hack into her accounts? When faced with this tsunami of incriminating evidence, Klaus eventually crumbled and admitted to detectives that he had dissolved Li Ping's body in acid. But he swore that he didn't kill her. Oh, it was an accident. Yeah. I had this wheelie bin full of acid <laughs> uh-huh. and she jumped in it. Well, yeah, she, she went to put out the recycling and she just fell in. Li Ping's family and friends will probably never know how she died. The only version of events available is Klaus's version, and there's no way that he's telling the truth. Klaus claims he and Li Ping had an argument about money, sex and infidelity on the night of October 30th, 2011. He said Li Ping had become wild and angry during the argument and scratched his face and stabbed his hand with a fork. He said he feared for his life and pushed her away from him to avoid this savage attack from a petite woman armed only with a standard, ordinary cutlery fork. Klaus said he turned around after this vicious fork attack to wash his hand when he heard a thump and turned back to see Li Ping lying on the ground with blood coming out of her right ear. He claimed he couldn't find a pulse or see Li Ping breathing. He said he picked up the phone to call an ambulance but then realised nothing could be done for her. And I quote, I thought when I saw Li Ping there, she is dead. What is the point to call triple O? Klaus left Li Ping's dead body on the kitchen floor overnight. Apparently he hardly got any sleep at all that night. Poor Klaus. Where? He said the next morning after shaving and showering, he put Li Ping's corpse into a wheelie bin and placed it in the backyard. He said that he remembered seeing a foreign correspondent or Dateline episode about Iraq, which showed people being dissolved in acid, so he went to Bunnings and bought 20 litres of hydrochloric acid. He then went to Brothers Leagues Club to collect points on his membership card and stopped for a cheap ice cream cone at McDonald's before heading back home that night. Well, he figured he'd had a big day and he deserved a treat. Oh, yeah, stingy bastard bought a 10-cent soft serve, did he? Well, yeah, that's what he says in the press conference. He actually mentions it, and he mentions that it was 10 cents at the time because well, he wants everyone to be proud of his bargain hunting. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> he forgets to mention that his wife's missing, but he's, like, all about how much he paid for his stupid ice cream. Oh, Klaus, you're ridiculous. Mm. You know what? He's completely fucking ridiculous. He's absurd. Klaus said, I took the acid in the backyard, I opened the bin and put the 20 litres of acid in there, on top of her body. Then he packed up Li Ping's clothes and possessions and dropped them in a charity donation bin. Three days later, he returned to Bunnings to buy another 40 litres of hydrochloric acid, this time using Li Ping's credit card. Cheap bastard. He probably thought to himself, well, it's her dead body, she should be paying for it to dissolve. Criminal profiler Dr Claire Ferguson said murderers like Klaus often become victims of their own egos, saying, What we mainly see with those offenders is their greed and history of manipulative behaviour gets the better of them. This is because they're often so arrogant that they think they can get one over the police. They tell these stories and they're easily verifiable or not, but they don't realise that police will check out these details because they think that the police will just believe them. As if, Klaus. 
The prosecution assembled a team of expert witnesses for the 2013 trial, including a forensic odontologist who could recognise what country the porcelain teeth were made in, a handwriting expert to determine the social services letter was a forgery, phone company representatives to help trace calls, doctors and several specialists. 70-year-old Andreas pleaded not guilty to the murder of 42-year-old Li Ping Chow, but guilty to improperly interfering with a dead body by dissolving his wife in acid. Principal Crown Prosecutor Nigel Rees read out emails sent between Klaus and his 35-year-old mistress Da. He told the court one email sent on October 31st, the day after Li Ping's murder, said, Now I have good news for you. The other person has left my house. She indicated to me that she would like to go back to China. Da told the Supreme Court she met Klaus at a Cairns casino while she was visiting her brother in August 2011. She said they had sex about five times and fell in love. Yeah, five, yeah, it's probably anywhere between three and seven, I guess. Anywhere between three and seven times uh, that, that of sex. We have like full penetration full sex. Penetration, full penetration sex that then you will fall in love. The court heard Klaus gave Da a golden diamond ring and told her he wanted to marry her. While Da was on the stand giving evidence at his murder trial, Klaus continually motioned to her, questioning her why she was not wearing the ring. So he's like got his hand up, he's pointing at his ring finger. He's like pointing shrugging. And pointing at her and like giving her like dagger eyes, like, where's your ring? I mean, come on. During the trial, Klaus doubled down on his ridiculous claim that he feared for his life when Li Ping stabbed his hand with a cutlery fork. He said he pushed her away to protect himself and that he never intended to kill her in his wildest dreams. Specialist forensic pathologist Professor Johann Duflau described a number of known causes of sudden death which were consistent with Klaus's version of events, but said that they were all extremely uncommon and told the court an autopsy was the best way to determine how someone had died. This prompted Crown Prosecutor and all-round legend Nigel Rees to ask... If this was an accident, you wouldn't liquidise the evidence, would you? No, you really wouldn't. No, you really wouldn't. All the forensics, all the evidence would be there to prove his story of an accident. Yeah, he could show them that there was like a tiny mark on his hand and he feared for his life because of that really like brutal fork attack that he suffered and somehow managed to survive. Would have been fine. And I assume he bought that first lot of acid. He's a stingy bastard. Oh, yeah, that's why he only bought, like, uh, you know. 20 litres. Yeah, 20 litres. He was like, yeah. oh, that, that oh, should be enough. <laughs> oh, I need to get more. I'm not paying for that. Oh, uh, I'll use her credit card. Oh, uh, good uh, idea. Yeah. Uh. Detective Sergeant McLeese testified, if you Google it, everyone will say that you don't use hydrochloric acid to dissolve bodies. It just doesn't work. That would be the sulfuric acid, I think, would uh, work better. Well, Uh, yes, but he went on to say basically we had to prove that in a seven-day period he could have dissolved a human body and got rid of it and that's what was seen going down the driveway by these other witnesses because it looks like a strawberry milkshake. In order to prove this, detectives came up with an idea they nicknamed the pig experiment. What do you think that entails, Barney? They travelled to a rural police facility near Marimba and put the dead bodies of two 50-kilogram pigs into tubs of hydrochloric acid. During the week that followed, a couple of officers had the grotesque task of checking the tubs. The contents of one was stirred every day, while the other was left to its own devices. 
By the last day, the pig that was stirred up in the acid had been reduced to slush and around 300 grams of tissue and bone. The other remained only half dissolved. So there you go. You can actually use hydrochloric so acid to dissolve bodies, but you have to stir it. There's a lesson there. Stir, stir your pig acid barrel. That's it. Always stir it. Mm. In his closing address, Prosecutor Rees slammed Klaus as an unmitigated liar and drew the jury's attention to a shit ton of porky pies he told in the aftermath of his wife's death. He also dismissed the notion that Klaus was in a state of panic the day after Lee Ping's murder when he went to Brothers League's club to collect points on his card. Rees said, Ah, oh, you don't want to miss out on a prize, do you? When your wife's at home in the bin... Klaus stuck to his bullshit story that Leaping's death was accidental, swearing that she'd hit her head and died instantly when she fell to the ground. The jury didn't buy it, though, and came back with a verdict of guilty. In 2013, Klaus Andreas was sentenced to life in prison, which at his age really does mean life. Good. For three years after his incarceration, Klaus appealed the jury's decision, taking the case to the Court of Appeal and eventually the High Court. His appeal to the High Court in 2016 was denied, which effectively closed his last legal window for good. Nine. Now all we need is a wheelie bin, 60 litres of hydrochloric acid and a big, strong stirring stick. Mm. Because you've got to stir it. You do have to stir it. It's very important. It means that Klaus stirred it, really, doesn't it? It does. That's what it implies. It does. Yeah, um, so he's 75 now. He's still in jail. Mm. He's still in prison. Uh, he was attacked, I think it was last year, by a, a guy in there, some Spanish boxer who's in prison too. He decided oh. that uh, he didn't like the cut of Klaus's jib and, mm. and he figured he'd rearrange his face with his fists. Mm. I mean, we feel similarly, this boxer and I, but uh, the authorities looked into it. Um, they investigated Klaus and they were like, yeah, he beat the shit out of Klaus, fucked his face up pretty good. But um, you know what? We're okay with it. So, Tara, I have a couple of things to say about your story, especially about Klaus and his accident story. Mm-hmm. So there was no blood found there, was there? No, there wasn't. I, I believe that he probably strangled her. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, you can imagine it too. He would enjoy that kind of power. Mm, absolutely. Wow, uh, what a story. Yeah, yeah. Look, he's a, he's a despicable person. He really is. He's where he belongs. Absolutely. Mm. Do you know what time it is? Um, is it shit in a bucket? It's bum tongue time. <laughs> no, it's true crime nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Jane Ann Harris. Uh, she is from Perth in Western Australia. And she writes, in late 2014, the prestigious $25,000 Blake Art Prize was awarded to Melbourne artist Richard Lua for his short video animation about a true crime, real-life love tragedy. Richard Lua's work, titled Worse Luck, I'm Still Here, tells the story of Bernie Erickson and his long-term de facto wife, Julie Kuhn. 
In a local newspaper, the artist Richard Luer read that Ericsson, 81, had pleaded guilty of murder for the smothering death of his wife in the fulfilment of a murder-suicide pact. They had pledged to each other not to go into a nursing home. After killing their two small dogs, Ericsson had then tried to kill himself by electrocution after the murder but failed. He suffered severe burns to his hands and lost both index fingers but survived after sticking his hand in a toaster. Julie Kuhn and Bernie Erickson were together for 50 years and they were parents to two children. In the Stirling Gardens Magistrates Court, Erickson pleaded guilty to the murder and spoke to reporters briefly after that court appearance. And this is what he said. He said, I, I don't want to go to jail. I want to be with my partner, but I'm still here. Worse luck. But before Erickson could be sentenced, he went to their favourite spot, Floriet Beach in Perth, and walked into the ocean. His clothes were found on the sand neatly folded. His suicide note reportedly said he did not wish to be a burden to his family. I think in his mind he needed to finish the pact with Julie, Richard Lever said. Erickson's wife, Julie, had been confined to a wheelchair after suffering a stroke and also suffered chronic arthritis. The court heard her death had been a mercy killing to save her from being put into a nursing home. When I read the story in the papers, I felt the need to retell it, Richard Lewis said. Lewis also said he made no judgments about Erickson's actions and just felt the couple's situation was tragic and sadly very common. It's a love story. Bernie sacrificed everything, Richard Lewis told media. Erickson didn't want to be seen as a torchbearer of the euthanasia debate. I think it's important to respect the wishes of other people, he said. For some people, there just isn't any way out. He wanted to be with his wife, and now he is. Wow, what an emotional story. And it's an amazing animation. We'll, we'll put up the link to that in our show notes and also on our Facebook page. Uh, it's, it's quite a short film. It only goes for about five minutes. But okay. it's, um, yeah, it's quite moving. I'll have to check that out. Mm. So that was our true crime nerd time. So thank you, Jane Ann Harris from Perth, for sending that in. And if you want to submit a True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to do it. All right, Barney Black, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Well, this story was suggested to us by Nicola. Thank you for sending uh, this suggestion in. Stanley John Smith was born on January 3rd, 1936. He was raised in squalor in the rough-and-tumble, poverty-stricken suburb of Belmain, which has since been gentrified. Much like yourself, Tara. (laughs) (laughs) After leaving school at 13, Stan worked on the docks. In his spare time, he pinched stuff and punched people. What? People paid him to punch them? Oh, yeah. A pound for a pound. Ah, a one-pound pounding, I believe they used to call it. (laughs) That's right. Which was probably the only way he could make a bit of extra cash. During Stan's teenage years, he spent a good chunk of time in juvie jail, counting the days in Australia's most brutal teenager prisons, Gosford and Tamworth, where he was abused. Like a lot of wannabe gangsters, Stan was taught at a very early age that violence was normal and it was the best way to get what you want. When Stan turned 18, his destiny was one of petty crime and violence. But fate had more in store for him. That year, he married his childhood sweetheart, Marilyn. Stan also met and formed a close friendship with career criminal and local Svengali, Lenny McPherson. So, yeah, we did a whole episode on Lenny. We Remember did. that? Episode I, 69. I do indeed. I believe we did that one with Cambo from True Crime Island. We did. Now, McPherson was 16 years older than Stan, but they were both Belmain boys and Stan and McPherson had both endured the horrors of Gosford and Tamworth reformatories. 
Stan's marriage to Marilyn would last 54 years and his friendship with McPherson almost as long, only to be ended by death. Stan the Man Smith and Lenny McPherson were soon joined by another OG, George Freeman. McPherson was the boss, Freeman was the illegal casino king and Stan, he was the pointy end of this terrible triangle, the muscle. Nicknamed the team, extorting money from various businesses was what they liked. They especially liked doing it from illegal brothels. Stan really dug it. It didn't matter that he was just married. Here, Stan would bang all the sex workers he wanted. He also brutalised, terrorised and raped them, sometimes in tandem with his best mate, Lenny McPherson. Well, okay, that's vile. Stan was so violent with the sex workers, one woman was quoted saying... He was very good looking, but if a girl sat at a table with him, she was dead. If the girl did not agree to have sex with him, he would do something like putting a leash around her ankles and hold her out of a top story window. A. He was not good looking. B. What a complete asshole. She also said some women went to McPherson for help. Stan beat one woman badly, breaking her jaw and knocking out her teeth. McPherson turned up to the woman's house apologised and pledged to meet all medical costs himself. Okay, see, that doesn't really sound like a Stan thing to do. Well, she's she's a sex worker, so she's product, you know. Um, oh, great, more women being owned by men. Yeah. What a delightful theme we're exploring today. Yeah, oh, yeah, these are the good guys. It was rumoured that Stan stopped this behaviour only after he moved into another area of their business as the team's hitman. Oh, so he wasn't um, being able to be violent enough generally speaking, so he beat up women and then he became a hitman. He was like, oh, this floats my boat. Well, this is really scratching my uh, punchy kind of itch yeah, that I have. Yeah, I might leave the ladies alone a little bit now. Yeah. But in fact, it was probably this incident in 1963 with Robert James Pretty Boy Walker at Randwick in Sydney's East that cooled his boots. Pretty Boy Walker was indeed handsome. Was he a little bit dreamy, Barney? He was, but that didn't bother Stan. Pretty Boy had been bragging about town about being the toughest man in Sydney. So Stan went over to give him what for, but Pretty Boy was ready for him and already had a score to settle with Stan. You see, Tara, Stan had bashed a sex worker, let's call her Sally, at a Woolamaloo hotel who was a friend of Pretty Boy's. Stan had his ass handed to him by Pretty Boy. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. And went home with his nuts in his mouth. I'm firmly on Team Pretty Boy over here. Oh, yeah. 
A few days later, Stand a Man wanted revenge, so he gathered a posse and went to Pretty Boy's fuck pad in Paddington to sort him out. But Pretty Boy was once again ready for Stan's squad and drove them off by firing a barrage of rifle shots through his front door. One shot wounded Stan the Man in his Stan the Man tits. <laughs> this was his first brush with death. He was pissed and his man boobs boo-boo hurt. <laughs> he wanted some cold, cold revenge and Stan would get his chance soon enough. You see, Stan was shot just before Lenny McPherson's wedding where he was due to be his best man. Determined not to let Lenny down, Stan checked himself out of hospital. As the wedding provided more than just a chance to celebrate, it offered the perfect alibi. Pretty Boy Walker had been charged with the shooting, but like a woolly jumper, he was on the lamb. Pretty Boy may have been a pretty dreamboat, but smart he was not. He made the mistake of hiding out at the Randwick house of the sex worker that Stan had assaulted. Meanwhile, back at the wedding, things were going great. Champagne corks were popping and everyone was having a swell time. This was not Lenny's first marriage though, Tara. His first came to an end after a particularly violent attack on his then-wife Dawn in October 1960. After coming home after a long drinking session and finding that his dinner was not on the table, Lenny savagely pistol-whipped his wife, threatened to kill her and fired several shots into the food still cooking on the stove. That's not going to make your dinner arrive any quicker, I don't is think it? it? I don't think it would. Also, don't pistol whip your wife. Come on. No. In July 1963, Lenny the violent arsehole found love again. 42-year-old Lenny was getting married to Marlene Carol Gilligan, who was 22 and didn't know better. On the night of the wedding, Stan and McPherson snuck out of the reception at Belmain and sought out Robert Pretty Boy Walker. It was at about 6pm when Stan the man received a call from Sally. It seems Pretty Boy's gallant defence of her was nothing compared to the power Stan the Man and his wounded tit wielded. Well, that's a shame. Jesus, Sally. Stan informed Lenny, who explained to his new wife that he had business to take care of and he'd be back soon. Ah, oh, just gotta go knock a cunt, honey. Save us a piece of cake. <laughs> they drove to the sub. <laughs> should, should I do it more? <laughs> that was good. <laughs> okay, good. They drove to the suburb of Kingsford changed out of their suits, picked up a stolen car and drove to the house where Pretty Boy Walker was hiding. They waited until Pretty Boy left Sally's house at about 6.15pm, then tailed him as he walked down Allison Road in Ramwick on his way to the local pub. Pulling up alongside him, Lenny and Stan opened fire on Pretty Boy Walker at close range with Owen submachine guns, hitting him six times and killing him instantly. Several shots also struck a parked car and a nearby fence. The car survived, Tara, but the fence died on its way to Fence Hospital. (laughs) True story. Police were on the scene almost immediately, but Lenny and Stan the man had bounced and were in the wind. They dumped the stolen vehicle, got their own car, stashed the machine guns and changed back into their rented suits. Then they dumped the clothes they had worn during the shooting into the Parramatta River and returned to the wedding reception in time to do the Macarena. The entire operation took just over half an hour. Well, you do kind of have to give them points for efficiency there. Begrudgingly, of course. The ballsy nature of this brazen killing made front-page news and caused a sensation because it was the first underworld murder in Sydney involving the use of machine guns. Balls the size of really big balls. Yeah, yeah, biggins. By the late 60s, Sydney was ripe for the pickings. Stan, together with Lenny McPherson and George Freeman, were fleecing people with illegal rackets all over town. But was that enough? No. 
Stan and Buddy Lenny McPherson made contact with the American Mafia. They flew to the US under false passports. In Chicago, the Australian gangsters were an immediate hit with Mafia boss Joe Tester. One night in the Windy Apple, there was a big party, and a rival of Tester's arrived on the scene. It soon got ugly. Bad words were said, Tara. Oh, we don't like bad words on this podcast. Well, then a punch was thrown at Joe. Stan Smith launched himself at this dude, bit his nose off and spat it out on the ground. Joe Tester dug it. So Stan literally bit his nose off to spite his face. Literally, yes. Well, I guess it's a very effective way to solidify a friendship. Well, that's right. That's how we met. Stan and Joe had a long-term bromance. Stan used the trip to learn everything he could about the Mafia's money-making operations and invited Tester and his men back to Australia. They went out to Botany Bay in boats and shot sharks with machine guns. <laughs> well, if you're ever in Sydney, make sure you go shoot sharks with machine guns. Uh, it's great for the kiddies. They learn a lot. You pay a little bit extra, you can use a hand grenade. Yeah, yeah. Climb yeah. the Sydney Harbour Bridge, look at the Opera House, uh, shoot some sharks with machine guns um, and exploit them with hand grenades. They didn't end up getting into business with the Chicago Mafia. They Joe Tester went back to Chicago and said, I'm not doing anything anything with these guys. They're nuts. Yeah, those Aussies are mad dogs, man. Um. <laughs> That's kind of how a lot of people feel, I believe. In the meantime, Stan was linked to many murders, with victims including standover man Charlie Burke, gambler Jackie Steele, and crime boss Richard Riley. Despite everyone knowing that Stan was responsible, he was never even questioned by the coppers. By this time, the organisation of corrupt coppers and politicians was a well-oiled machine. Mm. There are only three rules, Tara. There are only three rules. Never shoot civilians, never shoot cops, and always pay off the right people. Oh, so it's just like podcasting. But by the early 70s, some knucklehead threw a spanner in the gears, Stuart John Regan. Regan was a dangerous psycho fuckwit. Regan was known around town as the magician because he could make people disappear. He was also unpredictable and had a red-hot temper. Now, normally innocent people, or squareheads as they called them, had nothing to fear from Sydney's organised criminals. Whereas with John Regan, innocent people had a lot to fear. As well as killing his rivals, he killed civilians and hurt anyone who slighted him. This was not good for business, Tara. He already had enemies everywhere, Mm -hmm. but this time he had gone too far. After babysitting a friend's young son, Regan had murdered the kid. And everyone knew it was Regan. It was all over the papers, but the cops didn't have the evidence to put him away. This would have to be handled in-house. Together with old-school crime boss Frederick Paddles Anderson... (laughs) Paddles. That's a great nickname. Stan Smith and George Freeman, they decided to take care of the Regan problem. Hey, presto, no more magician. (laughs) Crime writer Adam Shand said this about it. He went beyond the pale when he took it upon himself to murder a boy. So you can imagine how this is viewed. They're crooks. They're not monsters. They view family the same way we do. So a bloke who could kill a kid, he could kill anyone. So, yeah, Adam Shand's a a Melbourne treasure. He's a great crime writer. One of the best crime writers in Australia, if not the world. That's right. And he has his own podcast called Adam Shand at Large. Check it out. Absolutely. Now, most cops thought that Regan's demise was a community service, though they would never say it to the media. Now, even though Stan was raking it in, he wanted more. Great greedy guts Stan wanted a slice of the growing drug market. This was not a popular move. 
Lenny McPherson and George Freeman wanted nothing to do with it. They thought it would bring unwanted heat on their organisation. It was also regarded by them as an evil business that was killing people. But that was heroin, Stan explained. He wanted to bring in tons of Lady Mary Jane Green Gunja Marijuana. That's how he put it to him. Yeah, probably. <laughs> marijuana. I'm going to import some marijuana. All the kids love it. Well, you see, Tara, Stan had it all worked out. Mm-hmm. The weed will be brought in by Lord Monaghan. You know, Lloyd Monaghan, the crazy English bongo player? No, please refresh me. <laughs> well, Lloyd, he was a disgraced British lord. He was a peer of the realm, he, but he'd run up masses of debt in England and had scarpered. In the 1950s, he arrived in Australia and became a bongo player and was well known around the King's Cross area. After getting into the shit in Australia, he pissed off back to England, went through Karachi and married a belly dancer. We've all been there. <laughs> He then landed in the Philippines where, for some reason, he was a very heavily protected man. He was given an island and the people to farm the wacky weed. The marijuana will be shipped out of the Philippines with the help of corrupt Marcos officials. They have 12 tonnes of weed and a yacht. Stan the man got five tonnes of marijuana every couple of months. Bam! Stan was now the biggest distributor of marijuana in Australia. Just like that. But in a cruel twist of irony... Stan the Man's eldest son, Stan Jr., or Stan the Young Man, was fighting a losing battle with heroin. To make matters worse, Stan the Man was summoned to testify before a royal commission investigating drug trafficking. The man who had lived his life in the shadows was suddenly in the spotlight. Although he survived without any legal repercussions, Stan was shaken. He was asked to account for the enormous disparity between the meagre income he declared in his tax returns and the millions in assets he and his wife held. Stan scratched his head. The man who had left school at 13 pronounced himself unable or incapable of understanding the questions put to him. He was barely literate, he claimed, and the lawyers were all university types. What chance did he have? Now, I suspect, Tara, that Stan might have been the smartest man in the room. (laughs) Stan was also grilled about the disappearance of Australian hitman Christopher Dale Flannery, nicknamed Mr. Rentakill. That's him. We did an episode on him too, episode 48. Yep, that was it. On May 9th, 1985, Flannery received a phone call from George Freeman instructing Flannery to meet him. Flannery went to the garage but found his new car would not start. There had been some evidence that the vehicle had been tampered with, possibly by the New South Wales police who had Flannery under surveillance. He rushed back to the apartment to call Freeman, who told him to catch a taxi. Flannery then exited the building and was never seen again. He had with him a loaded thirty-eight handgun, a small bag containing an American Express card, a wig, binoculars and a fake driver's licence and passport in the name of Christopher James. Oh, just like what you keep in the pockets of your jorts. <laughs> Remember that little cute little handbag you used yeah, to carry yeah, a around? Yeah, little, little, little man bag. little man bag with a little man bag strap. Yeah. Still reminds me of Gary Sweet because Gary Sweet played him in Blue Murder. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Nailed it. Evidence suppressed by a judge in the Jamie Gow murder trial has Glenn McNamara claiming Roger Rogerson confessed to Flannery's murder. McNamara alleges Rogerson told him he fired two shots into Flannery and dumped his body at sea. And then sharks ate him, and then they shot the sharks with machine guns. That's a true story. (laughs) Now, Rogerson definitely benefited from Flannery's murder, but he was one of many who did. 
The others included Lenny McPherson, George Freeman and Stan the Man Smith. Ah, the triumvirate of terror for sex workers. Now, Rentakel, he was aligned with the team and worked as a bodyguard for the king of illegal gaming, George Freeman, in between pursuing his own gun for hire business. $50,000, apparently. Yeah. He'd, he would shoot anybody. Ah, oh, well, I'm sure a lot of people would, but he'd do it well, right? A Sydney police source told the media that Flannery was a mad dog behind a suave facade. Sydney Crims didn't have much respect for him. They thought of him as just another Melbourne shithead. Like us. Like us. Some say Flannery rented a car and then drove to his meeting with George Freeman in Sydney South. Ah, Mr. Rent-A-Car. <laughs> Rent-A-Kill, Rent-A-Kill, Rent-A-Car. <laughs> Forget it right. <laughs> Freeman's ground floor bar had a number of hidden closets, perfect for a gunman to hide. Within minutes of Flannery's arrival, the gunman jumped out from his hidey hole and sprayed him with automatic weapon fire, killing him instantly. Flannery was then rolled up in a carpet and his body placed in Freeman's boat. His body was weighed down and dumped at sea and eaten by sharks. And then they shot the sharks with machine guns and exploded them with grenades. Yeah, that's one theory. Mm-hmm. But who was the gunman? Do we really know? Well, it's probably um, the man. There is, some, there is some debate. Some say it was Lenny. Some, oh, really? You think Lenny's going to do his own dirty work? No. Some Ooh. believe that the task of coolly killing a man as dangerous and slippery and unhinged as Christopher, Mr. Rent-A-Car Flannery, <laughs> could only be done by one man, the team's go-to assassin, Stan the Man, Don't Shoot Me in the Boob Smith. <laughs> That's what they called him. But I guess we'll never know, Tara. No, I probably not. Anyway, Stan had tried his hardest to get his son off the smack. He put him into rehabilitation. He'd even built a jail cell at his beach house to keep his boy off the wackety smackety. People call it that sometimes. No, only you call it that, honey. Just you. Really? Yep, just you. Despite his best efforts, Stan Jr. died of an overdose. Stan took it hard. Revenge would be swift and brutal. Like my lovemaking. (laughs) (laughs) Like Klaus's lovemaking. Like Klaus's lovemaking. He tracked down the drug dealer who sold his son the smack. There was no gun used and it wasn't quick. He punched the living shit out of him and as he lay on the road wincing in pain, the guy was run over repeatedly, reversed over and run over again. Stan Smith mourned his son and kept a pretty low profile over the next few years. Though he continued to make millions from his massive weed empire, raking up a fortune estimated at between 20 and 30 million. The team, comprising of Stan, Lenny McPherson and George Freeman, dominated Sydney's underworld until they were finally finished off by old age. George Freeman died of an asthma attack in 1990. And Lenny, well, he died in prison in 1996. But that's not the end of this story. It never is. In 2003, Stan found God. Oh, God, was God okay with that? No, God wasn't happy about it. I've been hiding from you for years, dude. When his former colleagues would come over to seek his advice about criminal activities, Stan was more likely to talk to them about Jesus and ask them to pray with him. Given his lifelong involvement in murder and violence, Stan's associates found his sudden conversion hard to believe. But did he donate any money to charities? Probably not. Did he uh, come clean about the crimes he'd committed and give closure to the families of his victims to some degree? No, he didn't do any of that. He did walk the streets of King's Cross handing out flyers for this evangelical church that he belonged to. 
Ah, uh, yeah. And did, he, got, he got baptised. Did he keep selling weed and doing illegal stuff? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds pretty bloody convenient, doesn't it? It really does. So Stan the Man Smith died on January 13th, 2010. His funeral was a strange mix of born-again Christians and wise guys. What a life of contradictions. A drug dealer whose son had died of an overdose and a murderer who found God. Oh, Stan, I really don't think God is that forgiving. Yeah, well, it'd take a lot of forgiveness, wouldn't it? Wow. Those underworld guys, they're all connected, aren't they? Yeah, actually, the research on this, um, Nicola pointed me in the right direction, but a lot of it I just had to look up my old files of other <laughs> Sydney crims from the 70s that I've written about. Yeah. Because they're all inter- intertwined. Big time. It's a very incestuous little field. It really is. I'm actually researching some New Yorker wise guys, so, to, so that might be a bit of a treat. Ooh, that com- sounds exciting. In the coming, coming weeks. Well, I have a question for you, Tara. Yes, Barney? What is Aussie Az? Aussie Az are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. Well, as a matter of fact, I have one right here. I'd like to thank Tim Kelly for bringing this one to my attention. Now, there have been a lot of earthquakes across the world recently. I reckon it's because the world is getting sick and tired of all of our shit. We really are appalling tenants, aren't we? Yes. (laughs) Thanks for your input. There were some big ones in California, and we've had a couple of substantial ones in Darwin too. A few weeks back, parts of Darwin had to be shut down and people were evacuated after a 7.2 magnitude earthquake off the coast of Indonesia rock and rolled northern Australia. Folks in the Northern Territory's capital said they felt the earth move and heard rumblings that were felt as far away as northern Queensland. It was feared that there would be a tsunami, but there wasn't, so we'd like to take a moment to thank the ocean for not fucking our shit up with that. Thank you. Brett Lubitsch, general manager of Hotel Darwin, told the New Daily how the first sign of the earthquake was that the pub's chairs started swaying. Lubo said, oh, the chandeliers in the main bar started swaying. You could tell the earth was moving under you. Though, Barney, if you'd had a few drinks, you'd have to wonder, was the earth moving or was it just you? Yeah, sometimes it's me. Mm-hmm. Now, being a bit of a go-getter, Lubo saw this natural disaster as a business opportunity and said, oh, we we're standing out the front saying to the evacuated locals, come on in, pub's open. NT adventurer and all-round Aussie legend Damien Wildman Duffy said, we've just had a bloody earthquake. There's people everywhere out on the street. What an absolute spin-out. Dead set, just had an earthquake in Darwin. He was pretty excited about it. <laughs> uh, he went on to say, oh, I felt a bit of a rumble going on. Wasn't sure if it was my guts having a few too many drinks or something like that. It wasn't your guts, wild man. It really was an actual earthquake. He went on to add, oh, it's the talk of the town. Not too much happens. They'll be talking about it down the pub tonight. So there you have it. Earthquakes just make us go to the pub even more. This mm. is Australia, my friends. Yeah, it really is, yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they make some valid points there. <laughs> yeah. They really do. Yeah. Oh, what a bloody spin out, eh? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought it was just my guts. Alrighty, so this pretty much brings us to the end of the episode, doesn't it? Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty, mm-hmm. there's a PayPal donate button there too. And we had a lovely donation. We really did, and a beautiful email. Are you gonna um, you gonna read out some of that? 
And it's from Kate Mahan. And, and, she, and it more than pays for the drinks tonight. Thank you so much, Kate. And she'd like to dedicate the donation in honour of her friend Rose. And uh, before she passed, I would visit her almost every day. She writes. She writes. As a true crime enthusiast from way back, I would take notes on all the shows I watched and would tell Rose about them. She was blind and very hard of hearing. When I told her about a case when the husband's greediness had got him caught, after he was hailed a hero for trying to save his wife's life, she exclaimed, what a dumb shit. My favourite Rose story was that she hated to iron. She would put it behind a door and when it started pouring over the top, her sister-in-law would bring her ironing board over and they would drink wine and iron. Apparently, as the afternoon wore on and the wine bottle emptied, the iron clothes were not so ironed. I miss her and I know she would love your show like I do. Thank you, Kate. Yeah, thank you. And um, I reckon that we would have loved Rose too. She sounds like a bloody legend. She really does. We'd also like to take a moment before we go to thank our Facebook moderating team. Um, Doing great work, guys. Uh, Thank you so much. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook through our page or join our group. Uh, At Twitter, we are at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we are Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, BloodyMurderPodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So you've got a little story to tell me about your no. trip to Brisbane, haven't you? Yeah, I went. Basically, I went on a, a really uh, tall Ferris wheel with my elderly mother. Um, in and it was a very windy day. And uh, as we got to the top, and our carriage was just like rocking. It was very high, and I started to have a bit of a panic attack. And I was going to my mum. Oh well, at least we're at the top now, like you know. And she's like, Oh, we're not at the top. She was fine with it. I was freaking out, but I refused to get off because it cost twenty-two bucks, and I'm stingy. How old's your mum? My mum's 81, and she was totally cool with it. She must have had you when she was 60. Yeah, she was 75 when she had me. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just funny, uh, because I I just didn't expect it to be rocking in the high winds, and I didn't expect... I thought it'd be fun. I didn't expect myself every time we went around up into the top bit to be just holding onto the seat and, like, breathing heavily. (laughs) But, yeah, I'm really happy I didn't press that button. I got through it. Well, you're such a scaredy pants. I'm a little bit of a fraidy cat at times. So things now, things things that frighten me. When you're swimming in the ocean and you see a dolphin fin, definitely scary. And very, very tall, <laughs> very tall Ferris wheels on a very windy day. Also no, frightening Don't me. recommend it? No. Oh, we went to the Bolshoi Ballet too. I thought oh, really? I'd mention it because it would probably surprise everybody that that's I would wh- go to the Bolshoi Ballet. That's with those little, that's with those bears driving those tiny little cars, right? Yeah, yeah, Russian bears. So they're all drunk um, and they drive tiny cars and they're very good at dancing. Wow, did you like it? They were very good at dancing, for sure. It was, yeah. Pre- yeah, it was, it was interesting. I wasn't bored. There was a guy who was playing this bad emperor, the bad guy. He was my favourite. Uh, he was pretty cool, and he had really cool armour, and he could jump really high, and he jumped all the time. Well, the bad guys always get the best bits, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I was a bit like, yeah, whatever, Spartacus. Like, give me more uh-huh. of that bad guy. <laughs> well, it must be dinner time for Leslo. He's crawling up me. Did I tell you that he tried to kill me this morning? Yeah, I heard you, uh, you nearly died today. Well, I walked into the kitchen, and there was cat vomit on the ground, a lot of it. You didn't see it, did you, Chad? I did not, and I just slipped on it. You and, fall on your ass, and I fell on my ass, and a cat 
<laughs> I had cat spew on my boot and on my ass and on my back. Uh, and, uh, and it was probably in a neat little pile, but because I fell on it and slipped on it, I managed to spread it all around the floor. Oh, I got a high five, Lazlo, later. Yeah, I guess his Felix didn't agree with him this morning. Uh, well, see, if it was a dog, they would have um, vomited and then eaten their vom, so you wouldn't have had to worry about well, it. Well, that's right. Yeah, good times. I mm. love being a pet owner. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? That's great. <laughs> uh, they're better than people, though. Even if you do have to pick up their poo and fall down in their vomit, they're oh, still yeah. a shit ton better than people, and I think oh, we can yeah. all agree on that. Yep. It's like it's like being at the bottom of a really long staircase and going, got to climb this bitch now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all the way to the top. Zero degrees, 90 degrees, straight up and down. <laughs> I said that in my sleep once. Yeah, and we still don't know what it means, uh, but we're pretty sure it's quite wise. I, I, I said in my sleep the other morning, hey, Trey, Trey, come out to my car. I've got something out there that's going to blow your mind. <laughs> Did you really say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what you thought you had? No, nah, no idea. You know, what's that saying when your flies open? The, beast, the, 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 the cage door is open, but the beast is asleep. Well, that's if you can't see the penis. If you can see the penis, then the beast is awake. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when you've got to use your dick stick. Well, yeah, get back in uh, there. Pass me my dick stick, honey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bloody hell again. Oh, your todger's out again, Barney. Do you want your dick stick? Oh, that'd be great, honey. <laughs> Surely you'd feel the breeze on there. I mean, you'd know, uh, wouldn't like, you? Yeah, you know, I like the breeze, especially when you're wearing the collops. Oh, there was a guy that I used to work with who often had his zipper undone. But he was the kind of guy that if you told him, he would think that you'd been looking at his crotch. So I'd have to tell someone, like a dude, to tell him. And then yeah, he probably right. thought the dude was looking at his crotch. Yeah. But it just wasn't worth it for me to have him sort of being like, wow, Tara, she likes to look at my dick stick. He was uh, Dutch. Oh, right. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's why they wear wooden shoes. <laughs> So you can hear them coming and you know to look at their crotch. Exactly. Makes sense. <laughs> it does when you think about it. Yeah. It doesn't. I know Chinese women are small, but they were living in cans. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you actually, um, they're cheaper by the dozen, Barney. <laughs> yeah. She eventually kind of ended up living in a can, didn't she? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, she did. She wasn't living there, was she? Hey, baby. Hey, baby. Hey, baby, I'm living in a can. <laughs> Hang on. Well, also, you know something else interesting? If you, like, argue with a woman about how she's not having sex with you enough, oh, it's like a tsunami in her pants. It'll really turn her on. She'll be like, damn, i got to get down on that a lot more. <laughs> really, you're yelling at me about not putting out enough. Woo, yeah, baby. Yeah, how about just, you know, like, buy some fucking flowers. <laughs> yeah, oh, he wouldn't buy them. He might take them off a grave or something, stingy yeah. old cunt. <laughs> So, what was that? Your fucking phone, fool. No, I think it was a computer. Well, it was some kind of beep. Well, don't, you know. It wasn't my beep. It was your beep. Fix it. Fix it. Oh, my voice is going to go up even higher. (laughs) (laughs) Fix it, you DOS cunt. You're a fucking idiot, aren't you? DOS cunt. Direct operating system cunt. Is that what you called me? I called you a DOS cunt. It's actually in Train Spotting in the novel. They always call people DOS cunts. I still don't quite know why. But I, I like it. I think it sounds good. I'm trying to bring it back. You want to do that last line of that sentence again? Maybe. So because may, of the beep? Maybe just start from the very beginning. <laughs> and he was a stingy bastard. Yeah, hands off my stuff. This is my <laughs> stuff. Shazer, you keep your hands off my stuff.
You're part of my stuff. <laughs> oh, good. You, you're actually, you, you, that was. I got get, the German accent yeah. down now. <laughs> oh, my God. That's fantastic. I'm so glad. This pleases me. In late 2020, yep, in late 2010, in late 2010, Klaus Leaping. In one year from now, in one year from now, <laughs> in late 2020. <laughs> I like, you know, uh, hand full size breasts. <laughs> I like all of my Chinese women to be in cans. I get a six pack of them that gets them cheaper that way. <laughs> he, would, he would buy in bulk if he could, honestly. Yeah. Well, you see, was I was feeling a bit lonely, so I went to the casino, and then I met a dar, and we, I, with fireworks, it just went off, and we looked into each other's eyes, and we just knew we were there for each other. I like very neat house, and you, we make lots of sex together. Before- I sometimes call her potato head because in Australia you say potato head, but well, back in Germany we say kartoffelov. <laughs> but in Australia, she potato head. <laughs> I don't even know. I think that was Yugoslavian, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm liking it though. I'm I'm very much enjoying it. I just like to have fun. I I, <laughs> I I like to laugh a lot, and I some people call me greedy, and I maybe I like money. I don't like to spend too much on, especially on the people. But I like to make sex, lots of sex, <laughs> free sex, free sex, very good. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, fork, you could stay pretty deep with that, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, meals must be terrifying for this guy. If, if everyone oh. has a fork, he must feel very afraid. Well, that's why I prefer to use sporks. Well, yeah, plastic and, ones at that. And then I don't have to wash a spoon as well because it's both. Do you eat your soup with a spork? I don't eat soup. I know you don't. It was a test to see if you were the real Barney or if you'd been body snatched. Soup is stupid food. What do you drink it or do you eat it? You it's eat confused. It, it doesn't even know what it is. It does know what it is. It's soup. And it takes too long to eat too. Little spoon takes forever. <laughs> <laughs> You're a monkey boy. Yeah, that's um credit card fraud you could add to his charges. There. Well, so, do you want to say that again? That's credit card fraud. That's food you can add to the charges. Nailed it. <laughs> oh, now I have good news for you. The other person has left the house. You know, I, lo- I love to laugh. And, <laughs> and I like to have a glass of wine. But I get my wine from Aldi because it's very, very inexpensive there. <laughs> it's good quality too. Did I tell you that I love to laugh? <laughs> Listen to my laugh. <laughs> That's how I love to laugh. I mean, how many hand jobs do you think? Like, Well, that takes a few more. Yeah. So it, it, you could round that number off with a little bit of bum tongue. Yeah, you could. Bum tongue, you only need to do bum tongue twice and you're in. Well, yeah, you generally fall in love after. after well, you know, well, a couple of hand jobs. Maybe yeah. maybe a little bit of a nipple flick, yeah. um, uh, sex twice, and one lot of bum tongue. That'll that'll get you. That'll love. do. I, look, I <laughs> normally have to ask if they've eaten any peanuts in the last few mm. days because I'm allergic to yeah. peanuts, and I don't want the the taste of peanuts on my bum. No, no, you wouldn't like that, would you? No, it might irritate it. <laughs> you might get a rash. Uh, bum tongue with a pig. A little little teacup pig. Yeah. Boop, 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 boop. Should I go first, Wilbur, or, or should you? <laughs> Oh, I'll take that as I'll go first then. La, la, la. <laughs> Babe wants in. Oh, bum tongue with a pig. No. <laughs> <laughs> Why? 
why? I want you to boom tongue oh, like a pig. Oh, that little curly tail. Or don't. I mean, maybe don't do this at all. Maybe don't put a pig in acid. Yeah, look at well, I mean, if give them into acid, it. they love it. Oh, yeah. That's a, woo. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's a party. Oh, that is, especially if they're greased up and Cambo's there and there's a ball pit. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, I don't know, oh. Barney. Not sure you should have given that little one or two tabs of acid, mate. <laughs> Boom fuckalunga. Boom fuckalunga, he's tripping balls. <laughs> Can't get him out of the ball pit. Don't think he wants to leave. Oh, I loved our trip to Sydney. It was great fun. <laughs> What's the name of that Spanish boxer? I have his name, by the way. I don't know if I can Well, know. I made up a name in my head. Yeah. Gomez de la Fuente. Okay, well, that's very nice. But it also makes me look stupid for not knowing it. No, I don't know the name. I made it up. <laughs> but um, I, I just like that the authorities decided they were like, yeah, you know, we all we all wanted to do that, so well, that's okay. I think I'm going to change my name to Barney De La Fuente. I'm surprised you haven't already. Barney De La Fuente. Please welcome to the stage, Barney De La Fuente. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. <laughs> really, you think turning on a light might help you see in a dark room? You're a bloody genius, champ. I'd rather turn on a light than curse the darkness and call you a cunt. <laughs> What's that from? That's a saying I just made up. I like it. Uh, <laughs> well, some of it I made up, the cunt bit. <laughs> I'd Did rather you... call you a cunt and turn on a lamp and then curse the darkness and call you a cunt again. <laughs> can't spell Hawaiian without whore. <laughs> I, I think it can, actually. Uh-huh. I don't think there's a W in Hawaiian. Oh, no, there is. <laughs> No, I don't think it's an H. An H in Hawaiian? Oh, yes, no, there is. (laughs) It starts with it. Oh, fuck, I'm an idiot. You all can doffle off. I like to laugh. There's no O in there. No. I like how you took a moment to check and it was like you were reading the ceiling and it was written there. I always have a wine written on my ceiling. Yeah. (laughs) It's actually a wine pizza nailed to the ceiling. Pretty Boy Walker had been charged with a shooting, but like a woolly jumper, he was on the lamb. <laughs> I love it when you invent sayings. <laughs> mm, Barneyisms, I call them. Mm. Like 12 small monkeys riding a pig. He was on, he the-, was on the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> like a baboon riding a sheep, no. he was on the lamb. Like a banana inserted into a watermelon, he was on the lamb. You know that, uh, that lambs don't wear woolly sweaters, right? Yeah, but they're kind of woolly. Well, yeah, but I mean, have you ever seen one wearing, like, say, a a novelty Christmas sweater? Hey, what if it was a really cold winter and it just been shorn? And then they, they had to they make put it- a little jumper on it. <laughs> I would like that. that maybe the lamb me. has alopecia. Alopecia. Does that mean that um we should maybe start making our merchandise and hoodies for lamb sized? I think people? that would be lovely. Okay, let's do it. Lenny McPherson, person, Lenny McPherson and George Feeman. Feeman. <laughs> Fucking. And, uh, uh, sing it, Joe Cocker. <laughs> you sound like Joe Cocker if he had a cock in his mouth. You can believe a hound. It took me a while to think of a Joe Cocker song. <laughs> it was the visual that really got me. <laughs> <laughs> he was given an island and the people to farm the wacky weed. Like Cambo. Yeah. 
Oh, boom fuckalunga, mate. That's because he's stone sea. Oh, right. Yeah, boom fuckalunga, mate. You've got to take your hitters. <laughs> 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 Don't forget to delete your browser history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, grab yourself a beer if you want. There's deck chairs around here. Yeah, I like it in Thailand. Oh shit! I forgot to turn the microphone on. Been <laughs> 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 fucking longer. I just took my whole story. I'm gonna have to do it again now. <laughs> oh, his brother Mustafa. What the living shit, fuck, dude. That's your phone. Oh, really? Naughty, naughty, naughty. Phone's on silent. I thought I silenced it. Well, you didn't silent oh, it. That was this. It was a- All right. Is it some kind of My Little Pony alarm, is it? Yeah. Right. Okay, it wasn't you, but it was your son, and you're responsible. You know having children's just like keeping cum as a pet, right? Keeping cum as a pet? <laughs> you can keep your sperms as pets? Yeah, it's, 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 they're called children. Oh, Jesus Man, that was even dark for you. Really? I don't even know anymore. Uh, yeah. Wacky Wee. He was given an island. Didn't fuck a lot. <laughs> they, had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. 